Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that tonight we begin this Lenten journey with you. That this evening is really a time to take stock, to be reminded of who you are, of what it means to follow you, and how you are going to accomplish our salvation. And so, Lord, as we open your word together, as we take some time to reflect uh, upon those questions, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, understand, and open hearts to receive the word that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the reasons that I love the Lenten season is because it really is a time to take a closer look at Jesus, to specifically look at those final days of life, because it's as he approaches those final days of life that we see in beautiful color just who exactly he is and why he came. In fact, I think it's appropriate that we're looking at Luke chapter 9, that passage that was just read a few moments ago, because honestly, Luke chapter 9, although it's not the numerical center of Luke's gospel, it is the thematic center of his gospel. If all you had was Luke 9, you would actually get a pretty good glimpse of who Jesus is, what it means to follow him, and how he accomplishes the work that he set out to do. And so tonight, I want us to take a closer look at that story together. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up with me to Luke chapter 9. And you can also uh, grab the pew Bible that's in front of you uh, and open up there as well. Specifically, we are going to be taking a look at uh, Luke chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 18. Because uh, what we see in this passage is, number one, who Jesus is, number two, what it means to follow him, and number three, how he accomplishes what he set out to do. Luke 9, 18 really begins with Jesus asking a question. The question is this, who do the crowds say that I am? See, up to this point, Jesus has been uh, doing his public ministry. It's been, so far, a fairly successful one, but not uncontested. Uh, he has uh, been preaching and teaching. He's been healing illnesses, casting out demons. And, and he wants to know from his closest followers, the ones who've been paying attention, he wants to know, so, so who do the crowds now say that I am? There's some interesting responses. They say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets of long ago, has come back to life. It's kind of interesting that these are the different ways that people were trying to make sense of Jesus because of the fact that his ministry up to this point, while amazing and awe-inspiring, is also a little bit confusing. People are trying to figure out, how is it that he's able to do the miracles that he's doing it? Uh, what, where does he get the wisdom that, that he has to, to preach and teach, the kind of authority that he has? What we see is in Jesus' day, people were just as confused about who Jesus is as many people are today. That if you ask people who Jesus was, people of all various different religions and philosophies will give you all kinds of different answers. They have some people saying, well, he was just kind of a, 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 a good teacher, a first century rabbi. Other people will say that he was a brilliant philosopher. Others will say that he was a radical and a revolutionary what I find fascinating is even if you ask people of the other world's religions, what do they think about Jesus, they all try to find some way from their own religious framework to make sense of him. Um, I've talked to many rabbis who've looked at Jesus and said, well, he was just a really wise rabbi, kind of ahead of his time. 
I've talked with Muslims who said that, well, he was a prophet. I've talked with Hindus who said that he's some sort of incarnation of Vishnu. Everybody tries to fit Jesus into their own box, and yet none of those labels really seem to quite work, not when you really take a closer look at him. He doesn't quite fit in everybody's box. And so Jesus then asks his disciples a second question. Again, these are the people who are paying the most attention to him. He said, like, you guys know me pretty well. You've been paying the closest attention to who I am. And so I want to know, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this incredible response. He says that you are God's Messiah. That title Messiah means anointed one. Because you see, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, there were these promises from God. Promises that there would be someone who would come, who would be God's anointed, anointed with his own spirit, with his power and authority. When this term Messiah was used, this idea of anointing is something that applied to kings and to priests. And throughout the Old Testament, we get these whispers of a greater king to come of a priest unlike any other, one who not only would bring a message from God, but who himself would be the message. God himself setting up residence in our world, God's Messiah, God's anointed one. And right here in Peter's response, we finally begin to see who Jesus actually is. He's not just some brilliant philosopher, not just some good rabbi, not just another guru dispensing some kind of message and leaving it up to us to figure out what we do with it. No, what Peter is saying and what Jesus affirms in this moment is Peter is saying, you are not just another messenger, you are the message. You are the one that we have longed for. You are the divine one, the holy one who has come into our world. In this moment, we come to see that that's exactly who Jesus is. Because no one claims the kinds of things that Jesus claims and can be, possibly be called just a good teacher. No one could do the kinds of things that Jesus does and thought to be just a prophet. And in fact, people who've really paid attention to Jesus' life and ministry, people who've really taken a closer look at who he is, have come to the same conclusion. That Jesus is not just one among many great religious teachers and philosophers, that he stands head and shoulders above and beyond them because it's not just about his message, it's about him. In fact, I recently came across a quote from uh, Kenneth Latourette. He's uh, the professor of historical Christianity at Yale University. And this is what he says. He says, it's not his teachings which make Jesus so remarkable, although these would be enough to give him distinction. It is a combination of the teachings with the man himself. The two cannot be separated. See, what Peter is saying in this moment, he's saying, you are the savior of the world. You are better than any other messenger. You are the message that the world has longed for. And beside you, no one else can stand. No one else compares. That's really who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the message itself. But we also get a glimpse of something. We get a glimpse of what it really means to, to follow him. 
Because from that point on, Jesus then starts to describe what's involved in following him. And this is important because, again, people have many different ideas of what it means to follow Jesus. And his own disciples were no exception. Because by calling him the Messiah, they're calling him the anointed one. It's a a kingly title. It's a royal title. And I, I have to imagine that for Peter and for many of the other disciples, they had certain notions of what it meant to be a follower of the one true king. That if we actually look at the rest of the gospel accounts, we see that, that kind of what they seemed to think Jesus was all about was that he would be a king kind of like King David. A mighty king, a, a ruling king, a warrior king, a king who would conquer his enemies. I mean, at this time, Jesus and his people were basically subjects of the Roman Empire. They suffered under the, the oppression of Caesar. And by calling him Messiah, Peter probably thought, you're the one who's going to deliver us. You're the one who's going to raise up an army and kick them out. And and what it means to be your disciples, well, that means that we're going to get some of that glory too. In fact, if you look at the disciples throughout uh, Jesus' ministry, they're constantly jockeying for position. They're constantly asking him, so who's going to get to sit at your right and left hand? And whenever they encounter some people who are kind of cursing Jesus or rejecting Jesus, they're like, hey, so should we call down fire on these guys? I mean, should we, should we start to wield some of that divine power, some of that divine authority? You see, they thought that what it meant to follow Jesus was that they would share in his power, that they would share in his glory and in his might, in his victory over Rome, that they would experience earthly power, physical wealth social prestige. But here again, Jesus has something surprising to tell them. Because, and it's honestly something surprising to tell us as well, because while I think that there, while I don't think that there are many Christians today who think that by following Jesus, you're going to get your own throne or your own crown or uh, material wealth, there's some, but not many. I do think that there are Christians today who think that somehow by following Jesus, that makes us better than everybody else. That basically to be a follower of Jesus means that we're awesome. That we can kind of look down on the rest of the world. That uh, for many people, being a Christian is about being above and and apart from the the rest of our society. And and I hear it often in many of the publications and the blogs that that I see kind of coming out of the church these days. Talking about how the culture has changed and it's really all going to hell in a handbasket. It's a good thing that we're separating ourselves from all that mess. In many ways, that mentality is the same mentality that Peter and the other disciples had. Somehow, following Jesus makes us better than everyone else. And yet again, Jesus has a surprise. Because this is what he says about what it means to follow him. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus says at the heart of what it means To be a follower of him is not that we think that we're better than everyone else, but rather it's a self-denial. It's the admission that my life really doesn't count for much apart from you. 
But to deny ourselves is to acknowledge the fact that I'm not all that awesome. That I desperately need the kind of salvation that only you can give. That to take up your cross means to die to yourself, to your own ambitions, to the, to the idea that you can somehow clean yourself up and do it on your own. No, what Jesus is saying is he's saying you have to give up those kinds of ambitions and instead cling to me and to my words. You see, that's really at the heart of the Christian message. It's not that we're better than everybody else but rather the acknowledgement that we are desperately in need of that which only Jesus can give. Recently, I heard another pastor, a guy by the name of uh, Corey Widmer, talk about what it really means to be a Christian. He has something really interesting to say about Christians, especially Christians and their shortcomings. And rather than trying to recount it myself, I wanted you to hear uh, him in his own words. So take a listen to this. I think a lot of people struggle to believe because some Christians make it incredible. Um, take away the possibility of making the faith beautiful and winsome incredible because of, because of the way that we live and the things that we do. Now, <laughs> there is something funny, uh, funny about that and a little ironic. So Christians are hypocrites. Okay, yes, I am a hypocrite. Can I just say that? I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I. Um, many of the things that I say that I espouse to believe, um, I don't live. And I am, and I know actually lots of, of people who aren't Christians who, are, who, are, who live better lives than I do. Uh, one of my closest friends is a Sikh, and he is a much more disciplined, uh, much uh, more self-controlled person than I am. But see, the funny thing about Christianity is that hypocrisy actually does not undermine the credibility of the Christian faith. Because in some ways, hypocrisy is necessary. Uh, because what, it, what is required to be a Christian is not that you're good and moral and squeaky clean and have nothing wrong with you. The first thing that is actually required to become a Christian is that you admit that you're jacked up and need help. That's like the only thing that's required is that you know that you are so messed up that you need grace. So in some sort of weird kind of ironic way, it requires people who are messed up. It requires people who know that their lives are not put together. So this is why when you go into a church, you find a bunch of people who are hypocrites because we are. All of us are. We, we're all broken. We're all messed up. And now that it doesn't excuse Christians doing and saying stupid things by any means. But what I'm saying is that the stupidity of Christians does not discredit the reality of the Christian faith. If anything, it points to how important and necessary Jesus is. Uh, because Jesus is there not to make squeaky clean moral people. Jesus is there to save broken, messed up people, of which the church is full of them. Yeah, that's what I'd say to that. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is really to lay our crowns at his feet. To acknowledge that we're not squeaky clean, that we're not perfect, and that we desperately need his grace. And so if you're following Jesus because it somehow makes you feel better than others, if you're following Jesus so that you can just get his stuff, his wisdom, his power, you're following him for all the wrong reasons. 
This mark that we bear on our foreheads tonight is not a sign of our superiority, but rather is a reminder of the fact that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That every single one of us, compared to his perfection, is nothing, is simply dust. Jesus says that's really what it means to follow him, to lay down our lives at his feet, to cling to his words, and to not be ashamed of them. The question is, how does Jesus accomplish this? How does Jesus give us the forgiveness that we long for? How does Jesus go about making people who are so wrong right with God? How is it that he takes us who are nothing but dust and promise us new life? Well, again, I think Luke chapter 9 has a beautiful answer. Because as we turn to the end of this passage in verse 51, we read these words. It says that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. One of the things that I find so interesting about this passage is that it's actually hard to translate what Luke is trying to say here. In our, in our passage, when we read it earlier this evening, it's the, the way the NIV translates it is Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. But, but literally what the Greek says is that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. That he steeled his countenance toward this city. It means that Jesus looked to Jerusalem and didn't look back, didn't look anywhere else. That this is the sole focus, the one drive, the single priority that he had in life was to go there. Why? So that he could be rejected. So that he could be beaten and cast out. So that he could be nailed to a cross and die. But more than that, so that on the third day he would rise again. You see, his miracles were great. His teaching, yes, wise. The morality that he called for, perfect. But all of those things were not the primary reason he came. His one priority was to go and to take our place. To die the death that we should have died even though he was perfect, living the life that we should have lived. Because through that act, we would receive forgiveness and new life. He took our place so that we might be welcomed in to the presence of God. This past weekend on Sunday morning, we talked about priorities. We talked about how priorities reveal a lot about a person. This is Jesus' one priority. That above all, he came in love so that we might live. That's really what it means to be a Christian. That's really the heart of the gospel message. I love how Pastor uh, Tim Keller put it. He said that the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less, for Jesus has become my everything. 
because it's in Jesus that people made of dust, destined to return to dust, suddenly are given the gift of new life. So while we may come here tonight on this Ash Wednesday in an attitude of repentance, acknowledging the ways that we have fallen short, we receive the mark of the cross as a promise and a sign that though we are dust, God promises that just as Jesus was raised to new life by the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in newness of life. Our invitation this Lenten season is to once more look at the one who paid everything for you. To behold him, not as we would wish him to be, but as he is. Because it's in that moment that we will see his love in all of its beauty, all of its glory. And receive the hope that lasts for eternity. It's in the name of Jesus Christ the one who set his face toward Jerusalem that we might live, that we say, Amen.